The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter steam goggle polishers. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geeks. This is episode 30, Gaslight Geeks, and we'll be talking with author Carrie Patel about her steampunkish debut novel, The Buried Life, her work on computer games for Obsidian Entertainment, and diving into the sci-fi convention circuit. But first, if you've just found your way to our show, welcome aboard. You can find handy links to all our episodes at generationsgeek.com and email us your comments at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Now, on with the show. Carrie Patel, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's dive right in to The Buried Life. Your first novel came out just a couple weeks ago. How exciting is that? <laughs> it's very exciting, although I, I kind of joked that, you know, it was originally supposed to come out in July of last year. And mm-hmm. so I think it was right at about the two-week mark that I learned we were going to get delayed indefinitely. And so, you know, sure enough, pretty much right up to release date a couple weeks ago, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I, I, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. But no, it's 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 been very exciting. I I told my husband I was pretty queasy the night before and couldn't put my finger on why. And then I realized it and that week was incredibly busy and exciting. And, you know, now it feels like things are sort of slowly transitioning back to life as normal. Actually, I had a similar thing happen to me. My first Star Trek novella, while I was working on it, my editor, Marco Palmieri, got laid off. And so things were a little confusing for a while. And But that one all worked out as well, too. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's, I don't know, I've, I've tried to learn from other people's experiences and stories, and I guess just above all, try, I don't know, not to get, not to get my hopes up for anything to the point that I'm going to be disappointed if things don't turn out a particular way. Because like you said, there, there's so many things that can, I don't know, happen in a publication process, you know, whole imprints go under, books get canceled. So I feel like you kind of have to have a little reserve of sort of comfortable doubt. Tell us a little bit about Buried Life. Give us the thumbnail sketch. The Buried Life is a murder mystery set in an underground city. Uh, It follows a police inspector named Malone and a maid for the rich and powerful named Jane as the two of them try to understand who is killing uh, some of the more influential citizens in their city and why. It was really enjoyable. I, I got to read the novel. One of the things that I enjoyed about it was the new twist on a steampunkish setting. It, it has the, the air of a steampunk novel, but it's actually set in the future. Do you want to explain a little bit about how that setting came to be? I sort of thought of it as a post-post-apocalyptic setting. <laughs> it's about the civilization that rises after, long after disasters happened, and once people have, you know, rebuilt a society and civilization of their own. And so at the point in time in which, point in time in which the buried life takes place, um, technology is roughly to Victorian standards, uh, and that's sort of where people are socially as well. Um, there's a pretty strong sense of hierarchy, um, you know, and especially as you get into the, you know, upper echelons of society, things are very mannered. 
which certainly complicates matters for both the protagonists as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about the process you went through writing this and how much it may have changed or not changed over the years you've been working on it? So the setting was actually the first thing I came up with. Um, I got the idea when I was on study abroad in Argentina and in the city of Buenos Aires, there's a district called Recoleta and there's a very famous cemetery there uh, that's, it's gorgeous and it's got sort of all of these above ground mausoleums and it looks kind of like a little city, you know, when you're walking through it and mm -hmm. when you're kind of standing away from it. Um, so that was sort of the idea of, oh, well, what if you did actually have a city that looked something like this? How would that work? And I thought, well, it would have to be underground. I thought, well, why would it be underground? And so that started the whole process of thinking of, you know, what kind of world would this place develop in? Um, how would you get kind of this, you know, secretive mannered Victorian flavor? Why would people be underground? And could you have, you know, a society where it was no longer necessary, practically speaking, for them to live underground, but where this had just become such an ingrained part of their culture for several generations that this is just what people do and they don't think twice about it. So that was where it started. Uh, and after that, I started thinking about the characters and, you know, the kinds of people they would be and then what sort of plot would string them all together. And then it was outlining and drafting. Um, I probably finished that outline maybe around the end of the summer and had started writing. Um, and the first draft only took about a year. Um, but as with most first novel, first drafts, it needed a lot of work. Um, and when you're starting out, I think it's hard to tell kind of how much work it needs and how to make it better, really. You can mm -hmm. sort start to see what's wrong, but you think, okay, well, if I knew how to do this better, I would have done it better in the first place. <laughs> and that was where, for me at least, I just felt that I needed time to develop as a writer, time to start reading more attentively, um, and to start paying attention to how the writers I admired did things like dialogue and exposition and pacing uh, and all the things that made their books a lot of fun to read. Um, and so then it was a lot of the development time of The Buried Life was really just not actually writing it and not actively thinking about it, just sort of, you know, reading and working on other things and then coming back to it, you know, mm -hmm. every year or two and, and fixing it fixing it up more and seeing what else needed work that I hadn't noticed before. Um, sort of rinse and repeat uh, for a while, send out a few queries now and then to get it to where it is today. So that was your first novel, and now because of the delay in the publishing of The Buried Life, the next novel in the series is coming out very shortly. That's the hope. <laughs> Did you always think of it as a series, as a, that there would be a sequel, or were you focused mostly on just telling this one story first and seeing what happened? I thought of it as something that could be flexible. I thought The Buried Life could have been a standalone, um, but it definitely ends with a, a good jumping-off point for mm -hmm. further development for the characters in the setting. Um, so I thought, well, it could be a standalone, um, but hey, if someone wants to publish this and if they want more of this, it could be the beginning of a short series or a trilogy. Um, and sure enough, when Angry Robot was first considering The Buried Life, um, after they, you know, circulated the manuscript among themselves, they got back to me and said, hey, do you have any plans for a sequel? And I thought, I think you want to hear me say yes. So yes. <laughs> so I'd, I'd sort of batted around the idea of kind of what would, what would take place. So I had a very rough sketch. And from that, I developed um, an outline, sent it to them. And that was what I worked off of for probably about a year um, to try to get to actually get the second book, the second manuscript finished. 
after spending several years on the first one and then just jumping through the second one in a year or so, were you uh, stunned that you could <laughs> do a book that quickly? Uh, I I didn't know if I could do a book that quickly was one thing. Um, <laughs> one of the nice things about doing your next book after you've gotten one to the publishable stage is that you're certainly closer in your first draft to where you need to be. I wasn't finding myself making a lot of you know, the same mistakes and having the same problems, you know, with things like clunky dialogue and, you know, too many adverbs and all all these like really beginning writer problems. But I found that writing on a deadline is a lot harder than I thought. I don't know if it's just the knowledge that there's a ticking clock. And when you don't have anybody breathing down your neck, not that they were breathing down my neck, of course, (laughs) but, you know, figuratively speaking, um, if it just sort of gives you the mental, the mental leisure to kind of develop something in a very satisfying and organic way mm-hmm. but I'm rather type a so I would I would kind of have these goals for myself and some days I would meet them and some days I wouldn't and I would just sort of kind of watch the time tick by as I was getting closer and closer to this deadline I got it finished and I, I feel like certainly having that timeline was important um, because you can't spend you know as long incubating you know a, a sequel as you can the first book you know you do need to get it out there um, but it was definitely a different experience. And I feel like I've heard from other uh, other writers who are also, er- you know, early in their career that that second book, that first deadline book is a very different experience. Do you find yourself thinking about a third book or a fourth book? Do you find yourself thinking about what happens to the characters after uh, Cities and Throne? I'm definitely thinking about a third book and I've got an outline that's in progress. I feel like The Buried Life either had to be a trilogy or introspect. Um, you know, I'd, I'd very much like to, you know, write the end of this, you know, this longer story that, you know, takes place in this world and with these characters, Jane and Malone. And I'm, yeah, I'm working on that right now. What about other stuff before you worked on Buried Life? Have you worked on anything in between Buried Life and the next book? The first story that I actually got published was a short story called Here Be Monsters. And that came out with uh, Beneath Ceaseless Skies last April, I oh, believe. Mm-hmm. That was my first published work, and I'm also I'm a full-time narrative designer for Obsidian Entertainment, so uh, my first shipped RPG will be out on March 26th, and it's called Pillars of Eternity, uh, so I'm very excited about that, too. And then as for other fiction, at the moment, I'm also working on a novel that takes place on a corporate Mars colony, um, and it's about a bunch of Bear Branches youths, and these are... Uh, young men in India and China, um, where they're in certain regions, very imbalanced um, gender ratios at birth. And what that means demographically is that over the next hundred years or so, um, certain regions in these countries are expected to have uh, millions more males than females, which is correlated with many different types of social and political instability. And so the premise of this novel is that uh, you know, a lot of these young men end up working on this this colony in what's, you know, a very interesting but also unusual and in many ways hostile environment for them. That's very interesting. How did you come upon that subject matter? Actually, it was a, a conversation with my husband on Valentine's Day a couple of years ago. Um, and this is why it's wonderful to marry interesting people who are interested <laughs> in, you know, kind of all the crazy things in the world. Um, we were We were talking about First, the notion that uh, we technically have the technology right now to begin colonizing Mars, 
um, but not necessarily the political will, um, you know, or the money that anybody really wants to invest in it right now. Um, and then second of all, we were talking about uh, these demographic trends and, you know, what's, what's the world going to look like in, you know, 20, 40, 50 years mm -hmm. uh, in some of these places where you do have, you know, such imbalanced, um, you know, gender ratios, you know, how might that change things? What are these, you know, what are these young men going to end up doing? Is that going to have any effect on, you know, kind of gender relations in these areas? Um, mm -hmm. And then those two ideas came together and thought, well, this is a, a very depressing, but also a very interesting future. Yeah. Um, if these guys all, all end up sort of, you know, working in this place because this is, you know, one of the few options that's available to them. And where are you on th that one? I am probably about 45,000 words in. And I guess as has been my process for the last couple of books, kind of alternating with uh, plotting and writing. Mm -hmm. um, I, find, I find that I, to go forward in a meaningful way, I usually feel like I need a really solid outline and a really clear idea of where things are going. Um, I at least need to feel like they're going somewhere specific. Yeah. Uh, and I'm realizing now that it is a little ambitious and... <laughs> And perhaps to my detriment to, you know, write these novels that have, you know, multiple protagonists and uh, <laughs> lots of, you know, very distinct factions with very distinct interests, uh, you know, all competing in this and coalescing in the same book. Um, so right now I'm roughly midway through and kind of trying to to duke out the progression for the rest of the novel. Going back to The Buried Life, you juggled the various elements uh, very well. So you get a nice layered story that, and you get a sense of an actual society. You know, you, you, you see the, the complexities that, uh, that this society has, and it makes it a, a very uh, believable setting for the reader. Thank you very much. One thing I didn't uh, mention earlier was uh, the uh, enjoyable characters and the, the, the two different uh, characters from very different places in life. You've got the detective, then you've got the, the woman who's uh, making her uh, living as a laundress, and yet their stories intertwine and you have those uh, layers of society you know, it's kind of like, you know, when people watch uh, Downton Abbey or something, those layers, class layers, can lead to very interesting stories. You, you know, you're absolutely right. And I, I always find in those shows that it's, what's really interesting is that it seems like the, um, you know, the servant characters get the most interesting stories because they have their own, they have their own stories going on. But then, you know, because of the way they're positioned, they get to to see and share almost everything that goes on. Uh, in the stories of the upper class characters as well. Yes. Um, so that makes them certainly, you know, from a plotting writer's perspective, uh, very advantageous to have in a story. <laughs> Ella. Father. <laughs> Did you have some questions? I want to apologize. I didn't get a chance to read your book because it's been very busy and all of the books <laughs> I'm reading are for a giant paper that I just had to write for school. But I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited to read it. The interview is making me more excited. But I was wondering if, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about what you do for Obsidian Entertainment, because that sounds awesome. <laughs> sure. Well, it is a lot of fun, actually. Surprise. No. <laughs> um, so, yes, I'm, my title is Narrative Designer. And so primarily what I do 
is I work on stories, um, you know, like the, the stories behind the quests and sort of the, you know, the personalities of certain NPCs and end up writing a lot of the dialogue that goes into the game. Um, you know, so when in these, you know, in these sorts of RPGs, when you meet uh, companions that join your party and sort of have, you know, their own, their own stories and conflicts, I wrote a couple of those. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the, the quests in the main game that you come across as you're, you know, progressing through. Um, I did a lot of the dialogue for many of those as well. That sounds like so much fun. It is a blast. <laughs> um, and it's, it's fun as a, you know, as someone who's also a novelist to work in this medium that's also very collaborative. I get to sit down and have meetings with, you know, other, with area designers, with other writers on the project. And, um, you know, kind of figure these things out collectively. And when I'm, you know, working on a particular quest or a particular NPC's dialogue, you know, there's certain constraints and there's a, a sense of direction that I find is extremely helpful a lot of times, um, you know, to enable me to just sort of produce something instead of staring at the page and thinking like, okay, well, you know, what am I writing? Where's this going? What's this about anyway? And you said that, uh, your game that's coming out soon is called Pillars of Eternity? That's it. Is that right? All right. Mm-hmm. What What is that about? Well, I can't give away too much just yet. But <laughs> it, is, it is an RPG uh, set in the style of a lot of the classic Infinity Engine games. So things like Baldur's Gate, mm-hmm. uh, Icewind Dale, and Planescape Torment. I am going to keep a lookout for that. We're both ladies. We're girls. Sometimes we have interesting times and or experiences mm-hmm. that aren't always the best stories to have, but they are the best stories to tell. <laughs> Do you have any interesting stories to tell us? And you're talking about in the culture of geekdom? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I I actually can't think of any that it, like anything that that's happened to me at the moment. You know, I'm actually um, so I'm pretty new to the convention circuit. I I only started going to conventions probably a couple of years ago. Um, it was and it's it's something I've had a blast doing, but it it wasn't something that I just really had a lot of exposure to before. But honestly, you know, my experience has been very positive. I've, I've certainly found, you know, other creators and other fans to be, you know, very welcoming and very considerate. And I've, I've really loved uh, getting, getting to know the community better. One thing that I actually did think was funny that was really just something more that I observed than, you know, anything that happened was, um, so at Worldcon two years ago, it was in San Antonio. So that was the first one I went to. And uh, Mary Robinette Cole was doing a, a presentation about basically just about kind of interactions and small talk in, you know, this, you know, sort of big fandom setting. And, um, you know, one of the things she emphasized about midway through was, you know, look for the signs that someone gives when they want to leave a conversation. And when you see that someone wants to leave a conversation, you know, let them like, don't make them, <laughs> don't trap them, you know, let it go, you know, don't. Don't chase them down. Don't do any of that stuff. Um, And I thought, okay, cool. And um, this guy raises his hand and he says, yeah, but what if you see someone wants to leave the conversation and you really want to keep talking to them, but you don't want them to feel trapped? (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, you let them leave the conversation. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, it was it was just kind of kind of funny as I guess an example of just you know I guess the kind of the disconnect that is possible. You know, whenever someone brings up the idea of like, well, what's what's the gap between you know someone's intention, one person's intentions, and another person's reality? Okay, well, that was that's good news though. I mean, to hear mm-hmm. that you don't have any terribly awesome stories. <laughs> Do you have any terribly awesome lady stories? Not more than just like that person was annoying, I don't think, which is also good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Um, but yeah. we don't go, I mean, the cons that we go to are pretty like community oriented. They're not mm-hmm. very like, we don't go to like really giant cons that have some of those problems. Um, but you said you, you just started going to conventions a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, have you been into kind of nerdy stuff since you were like my age, or has it been more like recently with your novel? I've definitely been, you know, an avid reader and gamer um, since I was pretty young. Uh, I guess I just I was not exposed to the broader sense of community around these things. That's the aspect that's been new, which is always fun too. It is. It's very fun. Yeah, I have a friend who's just um, just getting into. Uh, more of like the nerdy stuff that she likes and so it's really fun bringing her to conventions because she's like getting the hang of stuff and it's just fun to watch that's that's and that's the great thing about you know these conventions in this community is just you know how much people like to share this stuff and you know how fun that is to to have someone share it with you and then to get to turn around and share it with someone else and just to feel that enthusiasm okay so you said you said you were a gamer what is like your favorite game or like a game that you've been playing for a while that you're really enjoying or like maybe one from when you were younger and can i interject and clarify are we talking about only computer games or any kind of games i mean either all of the above (laughs) 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 let me give you um a broader question like widen the focus a bit yeah i mean i guess in a really general sense i i feel like i did at least pick up some of my gaming habits from my family. Um, my family is the kind of family that likes to, you know, play lots of dominoes and card mm-hmm. games and uh, not in-depth RPG type board games, but, you know, casual board games and these sorts of things together. And then I remember at some point when I was, oh, probably in earlier middle element of elementary school, my parents started getting computer games. And I think two of the first ones I played were King's Quest Three and The Colonel's Bequest, which were both Sierra games, uh, Sierra, you know, adventure games with the uh, text parser interface. Um, and I, I loved those. I thought those were a blast. And I, you know, I, so for a lot of what I played when I was uh, kind of first getting into these things was, you know, other King's Quest games. Uh, I did get into Quest for Glory, and that's when I was like, you know, oh, wait, I can, I can play an adventure game, but then actually sort of customize my character and make choices. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, I, I guess more recently, you know, I feel like there are a lot of a lot of different kinds of things I liked. I mean, I love the Mass Effect series. Um, my husband and I have been playing a lot of Grand Theft Auto Five recently. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think the two of us got off on our on our most recent gaming kick back in October when we played Alien Isolation, which was just such an incredible representation of you know the entire aesthetic and feel and you know atmosphere um of a movie that that we both love that that was incredible 
um, and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess as far as uh, tabletop goes, I've I've only recently gotten into tabletop uh, RPGs. I I got a little die curious about a year ago and signed on, or a little more than that, and signed. Yeah, sorry, Dad. <laughs> and signed on for a um, a Dungeons and Dragons Encounters series mm -hmm. uh, that I found through Meetup.com because I thought, well, I, I've never actually played D and D, and I've always been curious about it. But that's the kind of thing that, like, if you don't have friends playing it with you, it's kind of yep. hard to pick up on your own, right? Yeah. Yep. So played that. Thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. Um, and then when I started working at Obsidian, I joined a Pathfinder campaign with some of my coworkers. And, you know, it's, it's a weekly thing. We only, we only get to play about an hour a week because of everybody's schedules, but it's a blast. Yeah. It's really hard to find that time once you're beyond the college years, mm -hmm. you know. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes computer games so great for two reasons. You've got the ones that you can just play by yourself, so you don't have to worry about everyone else's schedule. Mm -hmm. But then you also have the ones that you can play online with people. So even though if your friends have moved on or in a different city or whatever, mm -hmm. you can still enjoy that uh, interaction through a game. Mm -hmm. Also, it's just like super immersive. Like whenever I'm playing a computer game, I get like super into it. Like when I was playing Portal for the first time and I got to like the final boss battle, like I, <laughs> I was shaking so bad that I like lost because I needed to be precise. But I was just like freaking out because Gladys is like in your ear the whole time screwing with you. That was interesting. Yeah. And then I was like, pull it together. This is a video game. Mm -hmm. And then I beat it. Yeah, you did. You know, it's, it's interesting how certain challenges in games feel satisfying and certain challenges just feel very frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, and I think particularly when you talk about things like boss battles, there's sort of something to the idea on the one hand that, okay, this fight is hard because, because it's hard, but I can see what I have to do. And then uh, something to the, you know, there's a, a different idea where it's like, well, you know, I, f I feel like I get punished unduly for certain <laughs> kinds of mistakes. You know, right? It's like, yeah. okay, well, if the boss is going to take me out in one hit, let him take me out in one hit. But don't make it look like I'm going to get up and then have him catch up to me before I can even get up. <laughs> yeah. We played The Order 1886 uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was, I was talking with someone else who I think was describing um, some of that, you know, that sort of aspect in a little bit of the combat. Kind of like, yeah, if someone gets you with a shotgun or, you know, the really big guns and kind of midway through the game, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I didn't even really see that coming. And by the time I did, it was too late. <laughs> oh, I have another question that's maybe more, that's like too specific now instead of too broad. <laughs> um, have either of you seen the trailers for No Man's Sky? I have not. No Man's Sky? Yeah. Yeah. Is this a game? Yeah, it's a computer game. Like it's an infinitely generated universe basically. And so then you can go on all these little mini adventures and like discover planets. It looks amazing and I might I might like buy a PS4 <laughs> just to play it because I was like that's what Star Trek is all about and then I was like angry cuz there's no way it's coming out for Mac. <laughs> it's like mm. we just recently we got our PS4 um partway through last year and I guess that's sort of what's you know reinvigorated our gaming habits uh, be, you know because on the one hand there are things we can play together more easily and you know when I'm 
When I'm playing computer games, I do tend to prefer things that I can play by myself. And I do wish sometimes, though, that, you know, for consoles at least, there were more kind of couch co-op and local multiplayer Mm -hmm. games. Um, Because what we end up, you know, doing a lot of times then is just, you know, passing the controller back and forth. But it's still something we can sit down together in the same place, see it on, you know, a big TV together, Mm -hmm. uh, and at least share in that way. Colin McRae Rally is the reason why I'm such a good driver. (laughs) (laughs) I was nervous when Ella started taking her driving lessons because I was because like, you'd seen me just I, gun it I'd seen her drive like a mad woman through a Colin McRae rally no because it's the physics like I was driving in the snow with my friend Lydia the same friend that's just getting into cons and she didn't tell me that this corner by her house was slippery so I went around it getting ready to like go up to 30 miles per hour and just kind of slid and was like oops physics and then like turn the wheel the other way and like went and Lydia's like holding the edges of the car and I'm like I got it <laughs> that was fun you must respect the physics physics because physics will just turn on you like a snake in the grass see it can't do physics on paper but like when I'm driving it's just mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trained you well <laughs> growing up in a cold and slippery state like Minnesota provides many great lessons in physics <laughs> Uh-huh. Real-world physics. Now, the physics I got mostly growing up was just don't go outside because it's really hot out there. <laughs> nearby because then it's nice and cool. <laughs> so it was, all, it was all about equalizing your temperature, you know? You stay inside most of the time, and it's a comfortable 70, 75 degrees, but then the moment you go outside, it's like 90 or worse. I, I can't even do it. I... <laughs> Like, 70 degrees with humidity, and I'm just, like, dead. <laughs> like, I, I, it's so bad. I'm just, like, laying on the floor in the basement, just, like, eating popsicles all day. Like, please, let it be fall. So, Ella, hmm. did you have any further questions? I don't, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? I think we've hit my notes. And I think Ella gave us teenager speak for no. <laughs> just like the weird, like, nasal, like, just tones, like, up and down. Just... <laughs> and it's not even quite a syllable, because then once you get to a syllable, it's meh. Yeah. <laughs> See, you're fluent. I... <laughs> I can pretend it was only recently. (laughs) What are your upcoming convention appearances looking like? I will be at Comic Palooza in Houston over Memorial Day weekend. Um, I will be at Convergence over July 4th weekend. I'm very excited to be back. You are coming back. Surprise! We (laughs) We will see you there then. You can meet Lydia that I've mentioned more than once already. We are back as well. (laughs) Before we go, uh, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you online? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Carrie underscore Patel. That's C-A-R-R-I-E underscore P-A-T-E-L. And I do have a blog that is updated randomly and capriciously uh, (laughs) called electronicinkblog.com. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was fabulous to talk to you. And then, uh, well, we look forward to uh, seeing you this summer. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you later. All right, take care.
Good night. Thanks again for having me. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 31, The Spider-Men. We'll be talking about several incarnations of your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man in TV and film, both live action and animated. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which is only slightly infested by radioactive spiders. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come come back back next time. time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.